everyone. 1969, Johnny Carson was hosting The Tonight Show, and one particular episode featured Bob Hope. It was a good show, of course, and the next guest Carson called out was George Goble. But to the surprise of everyone, Goble didn't come out. It was none other than the Italian crooner himself, Dean Martin. Now, as it was Martin's style at the time, he was already two cognacs in to the next day's hangover, so it made for a rocking good show. Eventually, Gobel made it out on stage, and he promptly complained to Carson, saying, I'm coming out last. I have to share the stage with all these stars. And then he looked into the camera and he said, Do you ever feel like the whole world's a black tuxedo and you're a pair of brown shoes? Now you know what I feel like. Let me introduce Bob Hope and Dean Martin. Welcome, guys, to the show. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Neil. We are very excited to have with us Brent Johnson, and uh, I think we have a lot of good stuff to talk about today. So uh, you have your work cut out for you, Emil. I think I think the the whole show is going to be on you this time. <laughs> it's going to be the easiest show I've ever done. I'm just going to walk off screen, and then I'm going to come back in 45 minutes. Jeff, let's start with a sh- with an article that you wrote, something that everyone's been asking you about, and that's bank reserves. A long time ago, they really didn't exist. They didn't really make the monetary world go round. Now they're, the, it seems like that's what everyone is talking about. And you make the point, that's the problem. So we're going to talk about your article that was posted on September 21st at Alhambra Investments, and it's called, OK, Bank Reserves, Let's Do This One More Time. And Jeff, you start out right at the beginning. What the hell is a bank reserve? Is it money? Yeah, what the hell is a bank reserve? I mean does anybody actually know? Cause it doesn't seem like anybody does. And it really, it's, it's a, it's a, it seems like it should be a question that we should be able to answer very easily. Right. I mean, for the last, you know, 12, 13 years, it seems like our financial system has been defined or at least, you know, we're told it's been defined by what the federal reserve has done with all these trillions and trillions of bank reserves. And immediately we're, we're supposed to make the connection, right? Central bank, Bank reserves sounds money. It has to be money printing. And so that's really, I think, the overriding intent is bank reserves are money printing. However, as we know, as Brent knows really well, um, the results don't seem to correspond or correlate with that idea. As everybody knows, you print an excess amount of money, the result is inflation. Oftentimes, too much inflation, and in extreme cases, hyperinflation. And we heard about that. For the last 13 years, everybody, you know, a lot of people, most prominent Fed critics kept saying, this is going to be inflationary. The Fed's going to do too much. We're at risk of going beyond any inflationary threshold. Look at all this money printing, money printing, money printing. And so, you know, the fact that that didn't happen and the fact that nobody really seems to know what a bank reserves is opens up our horizons to a more, I think, uh, productive discussion about what is really going on here. Now, Brett, I know you have lots of uh, thoughts on it too, so let me, I'll turn it over to you because I think you're the one who really kicked the hornet's nest here with the whole bank reserves conversation. Yeah, and the, yeah, and the funny thing is, you know, you, you, good intentions often end up with bad results. You know, that, that, I mean, I kind of feel like a central banker. I think I started off with a good intention, but it turned out to, to start a war, so to speak. Um, 
you know, at, at the end of the day, I, you, you know, you just said, you know, we, we've heard about all this money printing, money printing, money printing. And, and, you know, going back 10 years, I was one of the guys who was just absolutely convinced that all this quote unquote money printing was going to be wildly inflationary. And, you know, I certainly understand. And, and because that was my view then, I certainly understand those who hear this now or, or, or hear about bank reserves and hear that the Fed's printing. I understand their mindset and why they do think it's going to be inflationary because I used to have that. That, that, that feeling. Um, it just makes sense. It's kind of common sense. But when you actually kind of start working through it, and it took me a long time to do this uh, and kind of work through how, 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 the, how, the, how the central bank operates, what they're actually doing, what the banks can actually do with what they're receiving, it just isn't quite as easy as the simple narrative. And I'm actually kind of convinced the central bank likes it that way. I don't think they want it to be completely clear. Because if they wanted it to be completely clear, they have the power to make it completely clear. Um, so wh- whether whether they're doing it on purpose or whether it's just kind of a, haps- uh, a happy uh, illusion or a, a happy side effect, I, it, the fact that it isn't clear, I think, to a certain extent, helps them, at least in the short term. Anyway. No, I I think that's a really good point. And it's a great place to start because I think the, you know, what we talk about, Emil and I and Eurodollar University is really about what does central banks actually do? And you hit it right on the, you hit the nail right on the head right there when you said, you know, they don't want you to know what they do. And the irony is Ben Bernanke's legacy of the central bank was supposed to be transparency. And so the more open the central bank becomes, the more open, the less open they actually are because I mean, look at the, the debacle they just they just did with the average inflation targeting. And rather than redefine or actually better define what the central bank does, what Jay Powell essentially said is, "We'll just start raising rates when we feel like it." That's right. that's what he's basically. Which is never. Which is right, never. Which, right? I mean, we're stuck in the Japan type scenario. But you know, to your point, that's the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be making things perfectly clear, dependable, predictable, yeah. these kinds of things. And they're going in the opposite direction because you're right. They don't want people to know what they actually do, which is really nothing. They do bank reserves, but what are bank reserves, right? Right. Well, and I think, you know, and and just, I think the, the thing to remember is that it's also, it is potentially inflationary, but, you know, I think people, again, they see the bank reserves and they think there's an automatic transition mechanism from bank reserves to currency and circulation and there's not an automatic link it's not quite that simple and so you know i think once you realize that there's not a there's not a formula that you can put on top of bank reserves and then calculate exactly the level of inflation or currency available that it's going to generate um we're we're breaking down what we're all taught in school right we start from the premise that it's really simple Fed right. does market acts. That's really the Fed raises the interest rates. The market comes back. Banks restrict credit. It's that easy. That's what we're all taught. And we're all taught to believe it. And it's reinforced, as you well know, in the financial services industry, right? Oh, yeah. Don't ever fight the Fed. Why? Well, don't ask quite. Just don't do it. It's very, we start with a very simple premise that this monetary stuff is really, really easy. And to your point, what, when you start taking a harder look at it, the Fed's kind of acting strange. It looks a lot more complicated. How does credit get restricted when Alan Greenspan raises the federal funds rate? That kind of sounds a little wishy-washy, too. A 25 basis point rate hike is restrictive. What happened in the middle of 2000s? You know, all of these questions start coming out. And, you know, before you get to anything, what you're really left with is the idea that 
this is more complicated than people are, than we're ever taught to believe and what most people want to believe. So, I mean, yeah. that's really our point here is there's yeah. a lot going on here. And that opens the door to a lot of things that uh, a lot of possibilities like lack of inflation, despite, you know, trillions of dollars in bank reserves. Yeah. You know, and I've used this analogy a few times and that, you know, Fed, the central, not just the Fed, but central bankers in general, I mean, they're fantastic illusionists, right? They are among the most sleight of hand experts and magicians, you know, that have ever walked the earth. Uh, several years ago, it was the summer and I, you know, I just, I always read research reports like I'm sure you do and stuff for work. And I was like, you know, I just got to get away from work. I got to quit reading. I, I got to take the, I got to do something that gets non-work related. So I, so I got a book and it was called Fooling Houdini. And it was about this guy who had kind of entered the world of magic and card tricks. And he, his goal was to create this like fantastic magic trick. And it kind of talked through the history of magic and the way they developed tricks. And da, da. And, and about halfway through this book, I realized, holy cow, I'm, I actually am reading about work. This is exactly what the central banks do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I <laughs> because think was, Emil, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it Milton Friedman who said just one of the last interviews he gave before he died. And Milton Friedman is the guy that everybody associates with the central banks. And one of the last interviews he gave before he passed away, I believe he said, what central banks do best is public relations. And you think, oh, my God, the, the grandfather of modern central banks should say wow. what they do best is monetary policy, all this. No, he's, they hire all these economists. They do public relations first and foremost. Um, you know, I, we talked about, you know, last year's repo blow up, uh, I think, last week, whatever it was, you know, it was a year ago. And a couple of weeks after that, I was in New York at a conference uh, talking about, uh, you know, stuff I talk about, liquidity, that kind of stuff. And uh, a, a young staffer who happened to be working at Federal Reserve Bank of New York at the time wandered over to the conference because this repo thing happened. What really blew his mind was, I mean, this was a major, major market event, a major market thing. And he couldn't understand why nobody at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York had any idea what had just happened. He's like, how can that possibly be? Here we are at FRBNY. I know, you know, he, I'm a young guy. I don't, I'm just getting, I'm just getting the work, work here. But how can it be that nobody at, at what's supposed to be the epicenter of the monetary universe has any idea what was going on in this major market event that everybody's talking about? The thing was, this was two weeks later, and he said what really bothered him was the story kept changing every day. And even, I, I, don't, I don't want to get it wrong, but I think he said either Jerome Powell came down to talk to them or it was, you know, John Williams, the head of the bank. And they just had, it was very clear, just what you said. They were attempting a sleight of hand, a magic act. They were trying to say, oh, don't worry about this. We're going to do that. And all he wanted was, what the hell just happened? What happened in the repo market? And they had no idea. And everything that happened, everything that followed from that was essentially, how do we get everybody to stop asking questions about what happened? Yeah, and I think it really shows how powerful a narrative is. And if you can tell a good story and you can convince people that your story is accurate, it will, it has the potential to change their behavior. And if their behavior changes, then at least for a short time, it can actually go the way of the narrative. Now, eventually, you know, the curtain will be pulled back and you will realize that the narrative is not as it's described. But narratives are very, very powerful. And, um, you know, it kind of goes, the, the, you know, there was another thing that was in that, in that book that I, I was talking, I was reading. They said, uh, what, I'm going to see if I get this quote right. It said something like, it's easier to convince somebody, um, how does it go? It's easier to convince somebody, uh, they, they were wrong than, 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 than that they were fooled. 
you know, people just won't accept that they were fooled. They don't want to be the fool. So if, 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 if a narrative is going along, they, they, they will cling to that. And, and if they believe in the narrative, they will, they will cling to that narrative as tightly as they possibly can. They won't let go of it until there's just absolutely no, no other option because they don't want to admit that they were fooled. And it's really easy. To, I mean, look, we're talking about central banks, the government, the best in the, these yeah. Ivy League economy. I mean, they do everything they can to build up this, this idea, this ideal of a technocratically perfect agency that can do anything it wants to do. And I mean, they're like Milton Friedman said, they're really good about presenting that kind of a, that kind of a, a presence in the marketplace in the, in the, in the media in, you know, to politicians, it's, it's an impenetrable wall that nobody wants to challenge. And so you just surrender to it. Like, look, why would I challenge Jay Powell? The guy's a G. I mean, he knows what he's yeah. talking about. That's why he's yeah. the federal reserve chairman. And, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's, 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 again, it, like you said, it's, it's all about building a, an impenetrable narrative that you're just not even supposed to question. Yeah. I mean, fight the Fed. What, what, I mean, that's the, that's one of the biggest narratives. Don't fight the Fed, right? Don't fight the Fed. Don't, I mean, everybody, your first job on Wall Street is don't fight you. The first thing they tell yeah. you is don't fight the Fed, right? I mean, that, I mean, I can't, right? it's it, exactly, exactly. And it's, it's just, it's mentioned over and over and over again, and it just kind of becomes part of your psyche. And it even, you know, it even gets self-reinforcing. Even people who don't, who, who do understand that the Fed is, you know, a, a nothing more than a, a magician or as I call it a puppet show, you mm -hmm. still end up doing things anyway because you realize oh, yeah. everybody else believes it. So I have to do it too. You know, if yeah. the Fed can convince people to buy stocks, then I got to buy stocks too because everybody else is buying stocks. It's just a self-reinforcing tangle that you're right. Everybody goes back and rather than admit they've fooled themselves, they rationalize their own behavior and say, oh, no, yeah. no. The Fed really is powerful. Bank reserves really are money printing, even though they know this. Yeah, something's not right there. But if I rationalize bank reserves as money printing, then I can justify my following along with what Jay Powell said in the media and the media all saying the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's a matter of perspective. When we look up at the night sky, what do we see? We see the stars. We see the planets, the gases. What don't we see? We, we don't see the dark space, the dark energy, the dark matter, even though it overwhelms that which we do see. And Jeff, you made that point in your article. You said, yes, it seems like it should be inflationary because what we see, we see the central bank's balance sheet expanding. But what don't we see, Jeff? Exactly what you said, Emil, the, the dark stuff, the shadow stuff that's contracting or has contracting or is causing all sorts of problems. And again, I think that's, you know, to, to Brent's point, the central bank is trying to offset this deflationary stuff going on in the shadow system that nobody sees by being very visible, vocal and open and up and, and, and uh, uh, transparent in their words, transparent about this quote unquote money printing. Now, they're very careful. They don't ever say money printing. And if you actually read the literature and, and the academic studies, they tell you it's not money printing. But they're very much uh, they're very very much in favor of the anybody who believes this is money printing. Any financial media that wants to write about bank reserves in the way of money printing, no central banker is going to correct them as to their error. They're going to allow that myth of money printing to get right. out into the wider public because that's the mechanism of monetary policy. That's how monetary policy really works. It's about making people believe in something, therefore expecting, as Brent said, at least in the short run getting people to act in a way that sounds like it's inflationary and therefore might become inflationary. Yeah. 
And I think, uh, you know, one, one we I don't know, Jeff, if, if you and I have ever discussed this before, but one of the topics that comes up often with this with me when I'm explaining that, you know, QE is potentially inflationary, but so far hasn't been, is they will, uh, you know, the people that, that argue against my position will say, well, then why are they even doing QE? How wouldn't if 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 they weren't doing QE, wouldn't the stock market be much lower? Wouldn't prices be much lower? And the short answer is yes. Right. And so um, I, I I'm sympathetic to the idea that there is inflation because without it, prices would be much lower. But the, the, the analogy I typically use is if there's a bucket full of water and it's full of holes, the central bank is pouring enough water in to keep the bucket wet so that it doesn't run dry but they're not filling it up enough that it's overflowing over the top um, because, you know, to get that, you actually need this transmission mechanism that we were talking about. You need the banks to participate. You need them to start lending and you need borrowers to borrow. Uh, and that's how you get the overflowing over the top of the, the, the bucket. Um, and so while gotta, I right, do, you got to fix the bucket, right? <laughs> right. And that's the thing is, you got to fix the you, bucket. <laughs> right. And I guess, and so, uh, so I'm, like I said, I'm, it, I, I do believe that QE is potentially wildly inflationary. If you keep building up the reserves and then for whatever reason, whatever happens that the banks do start lending, then you've got a lot more reserves of which to use to make a lot of loans, which can then create, you know, that, that can create a whole new narrative. But so far, that's not happening. I mean, it's very simple to just go look at the reports and see that it isn't. And that's why so many times over the last 10 years, you know, you see these charts of inflation expectations. They start off and they go like this for three or four, six months, and then they roll over. And then the next year, they start off and they go up and they roll over. And then they start and they go. And every time they roll over. And it's because, you know, the, there is no automatic transmission mechanism. The banks are not lending. And seriously, if you were a bank, why would you make a loan right now? we've got a, you know, we've got, net, you know, low growth around the world. Everybody's over indebted and we've got a pandemic where people can't go to work. I'm not going to loan somebody a million dollars in that environment. Yeah. I think, you know, it's some we talked about too, about, you know, this is a def deflationary background, deflationary environment. And that's really what we're talking about is your bucket analogy, the bucket, the bucket has holes in it and the holes in it are the deflationary holes. Nobody focuses on the bucket because nobody ever sees it. We're, we're told to, to, to focus our, all our eyes on the water that's going into it from the Fed. Right. And so right. we don't see the bucket. We don't pay any attention to the bucket, even though we see the water level never rises. We, in fact, it goes down a little bit over time. And we're, under, and we're left to wonder, how the hell can that be? The Fed's putting water in, but the water level yeah. keeps, you know, it's not sinking as fast as it would, but it is sinking. And the answer is, you know, and again, going back to our, our overriding point here about bank reserves, to your point, it's a much more complicated story. It's not inflationary necessarily. It's what else is going on? And our focus is always on the banking system, as you just said. If the banking system is in, def in a deflationary mode, that's it. That's the end of the story. The central bank will not be able to create any kind of inflation. And so I think you know, one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later is how do we get into an inflationary environment and whether or not that's a good idea, fix the bucket, you know, fix the banking system, right? That's how you move from this game of bank reserves and sleight of hand and all this other stuff into something that actually gets moving forward. But it's actually worse than that, Jeff. Uh, the bucket that we're talking about right now is fixed in volume, but that's not how human civilization and the global economy functions. The bucket is supposed to be expanding. 
it, we live in a non-linear world. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, that's, I think it's a lot, it's, it's one of the things that people have trouble wrapping their minds around is, you know, we can have, say, just a rough example, we can have 2 or 3% money growth, and that could still be a deflationary type money environment. It's not enough growth. That's what Milton Friedman said when he talked about the interest rate fallacy back in 1967. When he said tight money and low interest rates equate, it doesn't mean necessarily that the money supply is contracting. It just means it's not growing enough to meet the, the demand for the real economy. So in nonlinear terms, we could still see growth, positive numbers, that kind of stuff. However, um, it's, it's really more about you know, gradation. Is it enough growth? Is the system expanding? And is it allowing redistribution of monetary resources to enough different places? That kind of thing. You're right. The bucket itself, not only does it have holes in it, it's not expanding either. And so we've got a bunch of problems with our bucket. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, you put together an FAQ that uh, over three different articles regarding reserves and then what the central bank is doing. And let me jump ahead, but before I want to ask you about MMT because you don't you bring it up for kind of the first time. I haven't seen you write about it recently, and you give you give a possibility, an opening to future inflation. So that would be very interesting for the audience. But before we do that, Brent, I was super rude. I said you were a man that needs no introduction, and therefore you will get none. That's rude. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, again, my name is Brent Johnston. I have a firm called Santiago Capital, which is a wealth management firm based in San Francisco. And what I do is I manage the personal portfolios for a little over a dozen different families and individuals. Um, in addition to that, uh, and those are all customized, separately managed accounts for those individuals and families. Um, so no, not nobody has the exact same portfolio in that scenario. But in, in addition to that, I co-manage a fund which is specifically designed to play the knock-on effects of a lot of the stuff that Jeff and I are talking about today, um, or and you talking about. You know, I, I happen to believe that one of the side effects of all this misunderstanding and this quote-unquote money printing or reserve creation, however you want to, I actually think it's going to lead to the dollar getting stronger as opposed to getting weaker. I think it's, I've, I've, I've made that pretty clear that that's my opinion. But I think the knock-on effects are a little bit less understood. And so we have a fund that's kind of set up to, to play those knock-on effects. Excellent, excellent. Jeff, MMT, a lot of people are very interested in the, in the nitty-gritty of the banking, but uh, they're just as interested in what your view is kind of on the socioeconomic, socio-political uh, future, especially with that show that we did on communism. And so MMT is top of mind. There's an election coming up in the United States as if people around the world hadn't heard about it. Uh, Let's talk about a little bit about MMT. What did you write? What did you explain that might happen? Well, I think MMT is a quite natural response to what we just talked about. If the banking system isn't going to create money and redistribute credit and money throughout the economy, why don't we just use the government and the Treasury Department to do the job the central bank can't? And so in many ways, MMT is simply recognizing the problem that central banks are actually kind of irrelevant when the banking system is, this, our bucket is full of holes and not growing, MMT is a way to go around the bucket and let's just start stuffing credit and money into the economy directly using the Treasury Department. And the idea is, quite like the central bank, we'll just control inflation and all these economic variables, 
using tax policy, you know, uh, political policy, all these other government type uh, ideas where we'll, we'll take the small cabal of centralized bureaucrats that are currently working in a central bank, we'll pick them up out of the central bank, we'll plop them down in the treasury department, we'll have another small cabal of even smarter, even more effective uh, bureaucrats running the economy from the treasury department. And of course, ideally, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a perfect ideal for any kind of technocratic uh, process, right? I mean, what could possibly be wrong with that idea? Well, I kind of like it because now we can vote <laughs> like those people out, right? Whereas we cannot vote whoever's inside the uh, the central bank. So if politicians, and I don't think... Um, You're right, not thinking you of your Lord Acton here, Emil. Power corrupts, absolutely. You give the Treasury Department the power, people, you know, bureaucrat, bureaucracy's first job is always to protect the bureaucracy, to justify its existence, and then to engage in mission creep. So if we give the Treasury Department the authority to do what the central bank does, essentially, I don't think they ever give it back. Right. I, I you know, the think, other thing I'd, I'd, yeah. I would, you know, go and, sorry, go ahead. I'll make my point afterwards. I was just going to say, I would think that the Congress and the executive branch wouldn't really give it to the Treasury Department. They would keep it for themselves. Wouldn't that be more plausible? I go don't ahead, think Brent. so. I don't think so. I mean, that's obviously a, a, a good point of debate. In my mind, I think once the Treasury Department becomes the central bank, that's the way it'll stay. And that both parties will embrace that type of power and authority and therefore use it for their own purposes, which often have absolutely nothing to do with the economy. I mean, let's face it, the goal here is, again, it's, it starts from a reasonably sound premise. The central bank can't get around the banking system, so let's go around the banking system in some other fashion. Sounds perfectly reasonable. But then how do you actually do that? How are we going to have bureaucrats, who the bureaucrats, better bureaucrats than the ones at the central bank who haven't figured out the monetary system? We're going to find even better ones to plop them down in the Treasury Department who are then going to be able to use tax policy to control inflation and get economic growth and, and uh, use the same DSGE models to do it? I mean, come on. It's, 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 more, it's, not just an, it's not just a question about you know, effectiveness. You're going to give these people power, and then you, the biggest power that the central banks have that you're going to give the Treasury Department is accountability. They're going to be accountable to themselves. I think, Brent, you would probably agree with me. One of the biggest problems for the last, you know, more than the last 13 years, but especially the last 13 years, is that we've allowed central bankers to be their, their own judge. They tell you how they're doing. They tell Congress how the economy is doing. And so there's a lack of accountability in just this very idea. Yeah, it's it's really rather amazing. <laughs> you know, they they keep getting it wrong, but they keep saying one more time and it's going to work. And, you know, they're still held up as the experts. Um, you know, the one, one thing I, I would say with regard to the whole, you know, the Treasury, Fed, MMT thing is I think there's another popular illusion out there that, has held for a very long time. And, and this illusion is somewhat true. So I understand why it's lasted as long as it is. And the illusion is that the Fed, the central banks are independent. Um, I know technically that they are, and maybe even legally they are. But at the end of the day, Congress could rewrite the law and change the Federal Reserve Act and take the power away from the central banks. And, you know, the central banks were essentially created to act in a crisis, you know, be the lender of last resort. 
And when we get into those situations, it's always the Fed and the Treasury are in the same room trying to solve this problem. Um, so it's not like I, I, I think there's a little bit of a myth that the central banks are completely independent. Um, but I also at the same time, on the other side of the coin, I think that central banks, you know, no institution ever willingly gives up power other than George Washington. Right. Maybe the only right. guy in history to, to give up power or Cincinnati, so I guess. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but, um, you know. You know, this movement towards MMT, I, I can't believe that the central banks really like this because it's, you know, it's taking the power out of their hands and giving it to the power of the Congress. And and listen, you know, about the only group of people that I hold in lower esteem than central bankers are politicians. And so, <laughs> yeah. so, so to take this fantastic power that has been abused by the central bankers and hand it to politicians and think that this is going to solve all our problems is in my mind just absolutely insane. Now, it might lead to inflation. So if, that, if that's what you mean by solve our problems, then okay, I'll give you that. But the idea that this is going to be a better system and, and all of a sudden all the, the problems are gonna be fixed, I think is just wildly, wildly incorrect. Let me ask you guys, what about other countries that we've seen around the world that have implemented policies, and uh, Michael Pettis calls this the Gershonkin model, whereby they force up savings from the households, and then politicians take those savings, that pool of savings, and decide where to spend it in preferred industries. So like, I'm thinking of Japan during its growth boom, uh, China very recently. Yeah, eventually, I guess it ends in a decade or two of having to pay it all back. But of course, the politicians aren't around at that point. Why couldn't the United States and Europe pursue that sort of policy where the politicians are investing in preferred industries and creating growth that will be paid for later? Well, I, I, I'm like not sure what Jeff will say, but I'll say I think that they could do that. And I think that that's kind of where we're headed. I think that probably is going to happen. And I think it, you know, initially will quote unquote work in far as maybe perhaps spurring some growth and, um, you know, employment and inflation and all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, I don't think it will work long term, but, you know, long enough. I, I think that's where we're headed. Um, I'm not sure what Jeff thinks about that, but I that doesn't seem like an unreasonable prediction to me. I think we've already been doing it, honestly, but it's not it's not been politicians investing in productive capacities or even wasteful capacities. They've been investing in, quote unquote, aggregate demand. Look, the biggest borrower over the last 13 years has been in the, in the domestic system has been the U.S. federal government. So it's exactly yeah. what Emil said. And it's not savings. And, and we can we have a whole debate about what exactly qualifies yeah. as savings and where do those come from. But we've got that. The federal government has been pulling money out of, from the banking system who wants to hold only federal government debt. And they, the federal government has been the primary agent of redistribution in that sense. And it hasn't led to growth. It hasn't led. I mean, maybe it has led to jobs saved like they used to claim about the stimulus bill. Sure. But it hasn't led to the inflationary recovery we want because the government is always going to be a poor substitute for the private economy. It's just, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand. You can't get around the fact that a decentralized system will always be the best and most efficient. Now, it's always going to be messy, too, but you're not going to be able to replicate and substitute that kind of idea without any kind of even short-run consequences of inefficiency and balances and things like that. That's why, again, you know, I get back to MMT. Um, 
you know, central banks have no idea how the monetary systems work. So rep- replicating central bank functions in a treasury department, you still have the same problem. And we can extend it to the analogy that Emil just talked about was if the government's going to come in and just become the de- redistribution agent uh, for all economic resources, as we've seen over the last 13 years, it's not that simple. Maybe that's our theme for the show, right? It's not that simple. All these things yeah. sound really easy, but unless you really get into the nitty gritty details, you're going to be missing the, you know, the, why doesn't these, why don't these things seem to work beyond the short run? Where, what are the things that are actually missing? And so there's a hell of a lot of details. There's a hell of a lot of examples that say, yeah, this sounds like it could work, but no, I, you know, I, I'm extremely skeptical. Yeah. Jeff, you just mentioned uh, jobs saved, and that sort of rung a bell that many people might be saying that the Federal Reserve sort of saved the system in March. And you bring that up in one of your FAQs that uh, you explain why, yeah, not really. Can you talk a little bit about what a common uh, pushback to your argument is? Well, look at the Federal Reserve. They just fixed everything in March. They saved the system. They saved the system by allowing to the global system to liquidate. <laughs> I don't get that at all. No, I no. I what you're saying is what most people say is, look, you know, the the crash would have kept going and going and going and going, and it never would have stopped without the Fed jumping in the middle of March. And I think that's just you know demonstrably false. I mean, the Fed did all sorts of things in the beginning of March. In fact, quite a lot of things that it did during 2008 that didn't work either. And so all of these things that didn't work, all of a sudden. A, a flip, a switch was flipped, and they started to work. No, what happened was the Fed was was exactly powerless to stop this thing. Once it started, once the snowball started rolling down the hill, the liquidations were essentially they were basically inevitable. And then once the ball, the, the big giant snowball wrecked a bunch of things along the way, got to the bottom of the hill. That's when it all stopped. So, like anything, like two thousand eight, for example, markets and economy, we had a re-equilibrium. We had a shift a shift of the entire system to a lower leverage state, a lower energy state, however you want to put it, and it reached a new equilibrium, a new equilibrium where it could then begin to start working again. And it had nothing to do with monetary policy of the Federal Reserve. Enough leverage, enough money had been destroyed that the system allowed, based on risk, to reset itself. Brent, let me ask you a question. You manage money for a dozen families, Is there any sort of theme, and you talk to them and you hear what their concerns are, is there any overriding theme that you could share with us um, regarding what their concern is? Is it a variety of concern, or is there one or two things that are really top of mind? Well, I I don't know that there's one common one other than one expressed. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. You know, everybody wants to as they get older, stop working and continue their same level of lifestyle, right? Now, the people I work with are fortunate that they've made a lot of money. And so, you know, this is a very high quality problem for them is how do they maximize what they have as opposed to just getting by. So, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that uh, they're in any way struggling, um, <laughs> you know, compared to many people in the world. And I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not immune to that, uh, to the problems that are out there. But the, the, the big problem that they have is, and it's actually probably my biggest concern as well, is in addition to the, the havoc that I think the dollar is going to wreak on the system over the next couple of years, the biggest 
challenge that I see is, you know, traditionally as someone got older, you de-risked their portfolio by taking them out of riskier ventures and putting them into more conservative ventures. Now that's historically has been meant getting out of venture capital funds and getting out of the stock market and moving towards fixed income, right? Uh, because that's the safe area. But I think we are moving into an era where, and I don't think we're there yet. I, I actually think bonds are still okay, at least U.S. bonds. But I think we're moving into an area where bonds aren't going to be okay and where the traditionally safest area has the potential at least to be one of the riskiest areas. And how do you transition um, clients who are now in retirement or very close to retirement or even, you know, no longer working for, who, who have the mindset that you buy fixed income and just live off the coupons as opposed to buying, you know, Coca-Cola or Philip Morris or Nike or Amazon, um, you know, their parents bought bonds when they were in retirement. You know, they've owned bonds for the last 30 years and they've always gone up. Um, it, that, the, the, the challenge of, tra- of getting them to transition, we've already started talking about it. So it's not like a brand new topic, but you know, that's what worries me the most. When do you do it and how do you do it and what are the consequences of doing it? So that, that's, that, I'd say that's the biggest thing for me. Yeah, the issue really is growth. Again, we come back to the economic growth because if we had economic growth, I think about, you know, when I first started in this industry, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, what Brent is talking about, you could do easily. You could buy a 10-year treasury bond that yielded 6%. I mean, yeah. can you imagine 6% right. nowadays sounds like a, 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 an right. ultra, ultra loose cov-light junk yeah. bond, right? Or you and buy people, a muni bond that pays 8% and it's tax-free. I mean, right. that's you know, that's. That's the world we should live in. And people get this misconception that the Fed has lowered interest rates and that's a good thing. It's not. It's the opposite. These lower interest rates are a bad thing. And if the Fed was at all competent in its real job, interest rates would rise back to that that situation where Brent was talking, where you could buy a safe portfolio of assets and get a decent return on them. The fact that we don't have a decent return on them is because everybody is hoarding all the safe stuff. We don't want everybody to hoard all the safe stuff. We want them to go into risky stuff. Not the people that Brent's talking about are transitioning to retirement, but young people, risk takers. You know, uh, banks are supposed to be risk takers, not hoarders of treasuries. And that's really the, you know, gets back to the same thing. What are bank reserves? Well, bank reserves are, are just a talisman to make you think things are getting better and that low interest rates are the, are the response or the, uh, the uh, consequence of what the Federal Reserve is doing with its bank reserves when it's the exact opposite. If bank reserves actually were money, interest rates would over time be rising, not falling, and we'd all be happy again. Nobody would care what I have to say. Nobody would care about any of this stuff. Yeah. We could all get on with our lives and productive stuff, and we wouldn't have to talk about you know, Jay Powell all the time, right? Well, you know, I think, I think that's a great point. And the fact, you know, you, you said at the very beginning, everybody's talking about bank reserves. I mean, how ridiculous is it that everybody's talking about bank reserves? How ridiculous is it that everybody knows Jay Powell's name, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really it's, it's, the, the least fact important that we're talking person about, in, yeah. the, in the markets, yeah. right? And he's the guy that everybody yeah. always turns to, right? It's, it's, yeah. again, it goes back to, you know, what we talked about at the beginning. It's the myth of the Fed, the, the pedigree, the, the illusion, it's, it's really, you, you look at the Fed and it's got all the right things. It's got, you know, the very, the appeal to authority, all of that stuff is built into its DNA. And it's, 
It's really hard. And you know, I hate to, you know, the, the red pill, blue pill moment, but once you get past that, once you see the Fed and bankruptcies and all the stuff for what they really are, all of this other stuff really starts to make sense. When you realize that this the monetary situation therefore the economic situation is much more complicated, nuanced, and I think, you know, even to a certain extent, much easier to understand, once you get past that point, all of these things really do start to make sense. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's not just, you know, trivia, useless trivia. It's, this, is, this is everything here. We shouldn't, you know, the day that we stop paying attention to the Fed, that's the day you know things are going in the right direction. Exactly. That's a, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. But when we stop talking about the central banks, that's when we know we're on our road to recovery. Absolutely, man. The, there's a drought. And who do people look to? They look to the shaman to the, do the rain dance. As soon as the drought passes, nobody remembers what the shaman is supposed to be doing. Brent, I'm mindful of your time. We promise to keep you on only for 10 hours. And I think our time's coming up. Uh, let me ask you something that I haven't heard you speak about, or if I have, maybe it was a while ago, but Jeff and I are often accused of being doom and gloomers, that it's the end of the world and that everything stinks. What about, what about you, Brent? Do you think that we're in just a perpetual downward fall and then we're going to crash and that'll be it? Or do you have more of a kind of a, you know, a cyclical view, the classic fourth turning or George Friedman's, uh, storm before the calm, that kind of rebirth, that it's somewhere on our horizon. And once we get through it, there's going to be a golden age on the other side. Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but that's actually a fantastic <laughs> question, right? Um, because I think about this stuff all the time. I mean, I've been thinking about it for 15 years, and my guess is I'm probably going to have to think about it for another 15 years, not because I want to, but I think I'm going to have to. Uh, but you just mentioned the fourth turning and that the, the fourth turning is a book I read probably 10 years ago. And that book probably more than any other book probably has influenced my thinking. Um, and I think that we are in the fourth turning. Um, and so the good thing about the fourth turning is that after the fourth turning comes the, the, the rebirth in the spring. And I do think everything is cyclical. I do think we will get through this. But unfortunately, I think we're I think we're still in. I think we still have some more pain to go through. Um, you know, the the fourth turning is about breaking of things. And then the, the spring is about, you know, putting things back together. And, and uh, I was speaking to somebody recently and I said, unfortunately, I think we're still in the process of breaking things. And, and so I think or I don't like that. I, I, you know, I saw a chart the other day I thought was great. It was uh, the, the the happy contrarian is the, is the rarest, rarest or the or the or the the positive contrarian, right? The guy who is actually a positive thinker and, uh, but, 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 but thinks things are going to be really bad <laughs> and is kind of like the loneliest person, right? Um, I'm actually a positive guy. I actually think that, you know, good things happen. I think it's a beautiful world, but I think the, this beautiful world of ours is going to go through a period of pain. Um, that, that's the realist in me. And so I do think that we are going to transition. I, I do think, I, this whole system that we've been talking about, I think as we're going through the fourth turning, I think this whole ridiculous central banker system is in the process of breaking. And I think that breaking is going to cause a lot of chaos. But my hope and my belief, actually, not just a hope, but it's actually a belief that when we do come out the other side, um, there will be some positive effects. And whether that's because we get rid of central banks or because you know, we use some kind of this new technology, whether it's central bank digital currency or I, I don't know, but I, I'm hopeful. And I do think that we will 
you know, come out to the sunshine. But I think we got a dark winter ahead of us. That was full of analogies, but uh, that's kind of how I see it. You, know, you use the same analogies that you, Mila and I do. We get accused of being yeah. doom and gloomers, but it's it's yeah. exactly what you just stated. We we're, I th- we think we're taking a pragmatic, realistic approach to where we are now. I think once you get past all the central banker BS, get get, get beyond bank reserves, you look around and you think, well, things really aren't good. You know, as we said before, the bucket is full of holes and it's not growing. And so the consequences of that and not even attempting to fix the bucket is just like you said. And so there's – there's going to be pain, and those pains have very defined symptoms and signals. You know, we both agree the dollar going higher—that's a wrecking ball for the economy, the global economy. That's a that's a source of pain. I think that doesn't stop. You know, interest rates continually going lower, making it harder for people to de-risk because everybody wants to de-risk. Again, you know, it's exactly what you said. And I don't think you know it's not the loneliest position. It's not you're not you're not as isolated as you think, uh, Brent. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people sense the same thing. What they lack is the frame of reference is a frame of understanding to make sense of how they feel. And I think most people, well, I don't most, a lot of people feel the same way that you and I do and Emil does because they're sensing that things are breaking apart, things are not working, there is going to be pain. But like you, I know Emil, I'm going to speak for you, Emil, we're both long-term positive too because like the fourth turning and everything else, human nature, uh, I, one, of, one, of, uh, one of fans of ours who I was talking to over in Europe recently said entropy. You use the word entropy. Things times it gets stuck into these eddies and whatnot, but progress does tend to move forward, especially in a free market capital system. Progress does tend to move forward and you can't defy it forever. Good things will eventually take place. Good things will eventually happen. It's just, you know, it's never fun at the end of that cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. We, right. we really want to get to the up cycle, but we've got to get through the, 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 uh, the last parts of the down cycle first. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is George Goble signing off, thanking Dean Martin for joining us, and of course, Bob Hope, and uh, wishing you a wonderful weekend. Thank you guys, loved it, and uh, take care. Thanks for having me.